0: This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of, of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works." And again, in this passage, he said, "'They shall not enter my rest.'" Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, that, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, "'Today, if you hear his voice, "'do not harden your hearts.'" For if Joshua had given them rest, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts of intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the
1: Lord. You guys can have a seat. Hope everybody's doing well today. Howdy, Jean so good to see everybody today. Um, Today's a big day in the world of Emmaus. Um, we have a couple, Josh and Caitlin, who are getting married today, and that's super exciting. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, and so also it's uh, back to our summer weather here. Um, and we have a new fresh change of artwork. Uh, I guess this was here last week, but we traded the red pandas for a, a Scotland Highland cattle, uh, so both are cute. Um, but anyway, um, today, yeah, we're in Hebrews 3, um, and I'm excited to be able to walk through this with you guys, uh, but before we jump in, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here today to worship you, uh, to sing your praises together. Um, God, you are worthy of, of all the praise that we can give you and then more, so much more. Um and you have brought us all together as a family, uh, united together in Christ. Um, you've brought us together to encourage one another, to lift one another up, um, and yeah, to encourage one another to, to the confidence that we have in you. And So as we look in, in Hebrews today, as we, as we dive in, I pray that you would remind us of that confidence that we have in you, as, as, as that house that's built together in Christ. Um, and I pray that your spirit would mold our hearts, um, that, that your spirit would soften those because um, I know we all have a lot of things going on um, in the world around us, whether that's work, uh, whether that's dealing with um, kids who cry all the time, whether that's um, dealing with whatever else, with messy relationships and um, family that is sometimes difficult um whatever that might be all the distractions that we have in the world around us i pray that those would fade away and that you would remind us of the confidence that we have in christ we need your spirit to accomplish this in us Um, and so i pray that you would speak to our hearts you would draw us to yourself uh, remind us of the joy that's set before us your name we pray amen all right um So this has been a really interesting week. Um, I forget which one of these comes off and which one doesn't. One of them comes off, so I'll just leave it here. (laughs) I'll angle it up. Um, But yeah, it's been an interesting week. I work in guest services uh, at Bagel Brands, and this past week was Labor Day, and guests are mad on Labor Day. And so we were like kind of cruising along as a team and we just got absolutely buried. And so it's been kind of a crazy week uh, where I really struggled to remember the promise of the rest that was set before me. And so being forced into this text was has been really helpful for me. And I'm, yeah, super excited to be able to um, talk through it. Um, but so far uh, in Hebrews, we're kind of just starting out. We're, I think, three weeks in. Um, and so far, the, the main, if you were to boil the, everything down so far into one summary, it'd be the supremacy of the sun, And so Hebrews opens up with this amazing, magnificent treatise on the supremacy, the absolute supremacy of the sun, And then we turn and see that the sun. Uh, we compare him to the angels, and we see that there's really not any comparison at all. Um, and so like all through, through, kind of the beginning of chapter one, all through the end of chapter two, we see passage after passage from the Old Testament over and over and over again that talk about how much greater the son is even than the angels. And then uh, he's not only just greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses himself, the guy who led Egypt, God's people, out of slavery. He's greater than Moses. Um, And so, we see in uh, chapter 3, where we were last week, that Moses, he was faithful in God's house, but Christ is faithful over God's house. Moses was just a servant in the house, but Christ is the one who builds that house. And so, Moses, he can't hold a candle to, to the sun here. And so, since Jesus is faithful over God's house... Ben left us last week uh, with the reassurance that Christ builds his heavenly, that as Christ builds his heavenly new kingdom house, then we are that house. Those who believe in him, those who call on the name of the son, we are that house. And we left with with one conditional phrase there. We are that house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so... That kind of takes us to where we are today. Um, so we left on that conditional phrase. We, we are that house that the Son has built if we hold fast our confidence. And then he transitions into the practical part of that, which is where we're going today. And I'm sure you heard over and over again one phrase. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so uh, all of this, because Christ is greater than the angels, because Christ is greater than Moses and because we are that house that Christ is building together and because all of that's only true if we hold that confidence firm to the end, because of that, then we get into our passage today. And it says, and I love this, uh, therefore, it says, as the Holy Spirit says. So this is scripture saying the Holy Spirit has straight up spoken this in the Old Testament Right here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so, yeah, these exact words, uh, you heard them in the scripture reading over and over again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so this is a quote from Psalm 95. And everywhere we're going today is gonna have Psalm 95 as really the springboard that we're gonna to use to jump into everything that we talk about today. And so this whole section of text is one long exposition of this one Psalm. And so uh, it goes first part through the end of three, uh, we, we're gonna see the warning that uh, Psalm 95 uh, talks about and that the author of the Hebrews brings our intention. He wants to warn us of something. And then in 4, 1 to 13, we see the promise. Um, And all of this is is straight from Psalm 95. And so that's where we're heading today, the warning and the promise. And so read with me uh, Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. And we're just going to read the psalm for now. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice into to Psalm 95 here, um, there's a lot going on that if you're not super familiar with the story and the narrative of the Old Testament uh, text, then it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, yeah, there's, there's a few different layers of things that are going on here, uh, but it's kind of like a, a family story where if you're hanging out with your family all of you know how to talk about the story and you don't even have to say the story in order to know what everybody's talking about, if you know what I mean. For my family, we were just up in the mountains in Colorado for a week and uh, there was one time when uh, somebody got behind my brother in the dinner line and that's something that you don't do in the Baldock family because every time my brother, we, first of all, we all know the story of my brother in the dinner line. Every single time, there is a story of my brother in the dinner line. Um, he is so slow at everything. And so you're hungry, you're getting back from a hike, you're behind Kyle in the dinner line, and you're smelling like steak, chicken, whatever, enchiladas, and he is so slow. <laughs> but for example, I have a video of him. He didn't know I was taking this, but I was taking a video of him putting cream cheese on. He had already cream cheese half a bagel. So he's cream cheesing the rest of the half. And so I have a video of him spreading cream cheese over half of his bagel. The video is over a minute long. <laughs> <laughs> and he wasn't even done by the time the video was over. And so anytime somebody gets behind Kyle and complains, we just laugh at them because that's their fault. Like you got behind Kyle. That's your fault. <laughs> that's the baldock faux pas. You don't get behind Kyle in the dinner line. And so that's kind of we, we all know what, what, like, if first time Anna joined us, if somebody laughed at that, she probably wouldn't have, didn't know what it meant. But uh, we all do, and now Anna knows that very well. Um, but anyway, it's kind of like this. Jumping into the psalm without any kind of context, it's, it's difficult to understand if you don't know the story of the Old Testament, if you're not ingrained in it. And so... Um, Yeah, the story is kind of like that, but the story obviously is is much less uh, comical. Um, But anyway, so another thing about this psalm, uh, before we actually get into the content of the psalm, this psalm was composed very likely uh, to help Israel, to help God's people celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And what the Feast of Tabernacles was, is it celebrated this time that Israel spent in the wilderness, reminded of this, them of this time that they spent in the wilderness. And so, uh, if we're going back, stepping back into the narrative of the Old Testament, you see that Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. And then, through Moses, God brought them out of slavery and into the wilderness. And so, this is that point. And in the wilderness, they're, they're waiting for this land that God had promised them, this rest, this place to finally call home. They're waiting on this land as they wander out in the wilderness. And so this Feast of Tabernacles is meant to remind them of this time when they wandered in the wilderness, living in tabernacles or tents, waiting on that rest, that that land that God was bringing them to. And so um, Israel, it's it's they, they continued to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles long after they had actually entered that land, just to remind them of that time when they were waiting on that fulfillment of God's promise. <clears throat> and so, um, and ultimately, the reason why they would wanted to remind themselves of why they were wandering around the wilderness and why, while they were waiting on rest, uh, that promised land rest, is to remind them that they're still waiting on a final rest they're still waiting on another rest that's still coming. And the only, there's, there's one person that they looked to, to bring that rest about. And that person was the Messiah. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is this reminder that we're still waiting on this rest, and that we're waiting on this Messiah to bring about this rest, to bring us there, to get us there. And so, um, yeah. So that's kind of the intent and purpose behind why Psalm 95 was written. Um, and so now kind of jumping into the context, we see we see another layer. We hear some things like uh, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Like that's a story right there. And we find that story in in Numbers 14. And so the Lord had redeemed his people from Israel out of slavery and uh, he uh, did this through like an amazing show of his power, and uh, they had all seen his his amazing works that that God wrought to win their freedom and so they were front row spectators to Yahweh as he systematically dismantled every single Egyptian god right in front of not only the Israelites, but in front of the Egyptians as well. And so there were, uh, there were plagues and there was hail and this hail like killed people and cattle alike. And so like if you ever hear a, a weatherman, a meteorologist talk about a storm that's coming that's of biblical proportions, like what happened here in Egypt was nothing to this storm, or sorry, this storm is nothing compared to what happened in Egypt right here. Um, and Israel was front row seats to all of these signs that, that God unleashed to win their freedom. And so as they're, as they're walking ra- out of Egypt too, uh, the Egyptian army, they changed their mind and they decide to pursue Israel. And so they come to a sea that God literally splits, and they walk through dry ground with walls of water on each side of them. And as they come through, as the last of Israel comes through, they turn around, the pursuing Egyptian army is coming, those same walls crash down around them, drowning them. And that right there caps God's amazing, unparalleled powerful works that they were front row spectators to that guaranteed their freedom after 400 years of slavery in Egypt they had seen all of this and so then they're wandering in the wilderness and there's there's a short waiting period of of them actually walking to and getting to this land that God had promised them would be theirs and so uh, while they're walking the problem is they they grow impatient and they grumble and they complain about their conditions. They say that it would have been better if they just remained enslaved in Egypt and then wandering around in the desert, depending on God for food every single day, for water every single day, living in tents. And then one day, they're right on the border of of this land that God is taking them to. Um, Everything kind of hits a tipping point, a boiling point. And so when it talks about uh, the day of testing in the wilderness, the rebellion. This is that day that they're talking about. They're right on the border, about to enter the land that God has promised them, and they reach a boiling point because they lose and abandon all their hope. They even go so far as to say, we aren't going to make it. And so we are going to set up these leaders. We're going to find these other leaders. We're going to these leaders are going to take us back to Egypt and we're going to beg Pharaoh to take us back into slavery because we are not going to make it into this land. And so, um, yeah, so that's, that's the story that it's talking about. When it says the rebellion, uh, the testing in the wilderness, that's the day, the day when God's people, who had seen all of God's amazing works, who have seen him dismantle and show his superiority over all the Egyptian gods, reach a breaking point and want to go march back to Egypt and ask for their shackles back. And so um, after all of this, we see the glory of the Lord in Numbers 14 um, appear to the people of Israel, and God asks, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? And later, we see the consequence of this rebellion. We hear God starting in verse 21 of Numbers 14. He says, But truly, as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. And so then, Israel, rather than crossing over one hillside and entering into that land that God had promised them, turned back around. It says literally, they turned back towards the sea that was parted, walked back that way, then they wander in the wilderness for 40 more years. Because God swore in his wrath they shall not enter my rest. This is a grim story. And so we're in Hebrews. The intent of Hebrews is to encourage his audience to have this confidence that we have in Christ. Why would he put this story right here in Hebrews? Why would he insert Psalm 95 right here and spend a significant amount of time unpacking this Psalm? Why this one? So uh, we just left off um, with the reality that we are Christ's house built together in Him if indeed we hold fast our confidence to the end. uh, That should be encouraging to us. That should be enough to give us confidence that we are who Christ says that we are. We are who the Father says that we are. We are that house built up in Him. But the author is reminding his audience right here um, as they face increasingly hostile culture around them, um, who's demanding that they abandon their faith, he's reminding them of uh, the, the real dangers of actually abandoning that faith. Um, and so, yeah, so let's keep going. Um, so then, after we hear Psalm 95, uh, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so, do you notice the similarity of language here? Um, We kind of, in Numbers 14, um, we see that uh, he said that the people do not believe him. They've seen all of his works, yet they despise me and they do not believe in me. And then later in Numbers 14, uh, God actually calls Israel, this this generation that has rebelled against him and decided to turn back to Egypt, uh, he calls them an evil community. And that's the only time in all the five books of, of Moses where we see God calling a whole community evil. And so this warning here says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And so, how do we avoid an unbelieving heart? So, keep reading with me in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, like he says here, the way that we avoid an evil, unbelieving heart is by exhorting one another every single day, as long as it's called today. And so, um, yeah, exhort kind of a weird word. Uh, When's the last time you used the word exhort? Um, Have you exhorted anybody today? (laughs) I'm going to go exhort you. (laughs) Uh, You don't really say that. Another really similar close word that some translators actually use in place of exhort because we don't really use that word anymore is encouragement. But I think there's a little bit more going on to the word exhort than just encouragement. Um, Especially when you look at the Dictionary of Encouragement and you see a good definition that we could use in the dictionary, but then you go to Urban Dictionary and it's basically like, build somebody up, remind people of how good they are at things. And so that's kind of how we think of encouragement. I think uh, encouragement is something that's generally light and fluffy and fun and positive and upbeat. Um, But exhort, uh, it is positive, it is productive, uh, but it's a little bit more nuanced. And so uh, to help us gain a little bit more understanding into this, uh, this word for exhort actually shows up in John chapter 16 when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming. And he says in John 16, he calls the Spirit the helper. And that same word for helper is the word that we see here for exhort. And so the one coming, the Spirit, the helper, the exhorter, he's coming. And it says in John 16 later what he's coming to do. And it says that he, what he does is he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So exhort. Exhort means to remind each other of what the Spirit has already convicted you of. To remind you of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. And then these things then spur us on towards the one who is perfectly righteous, and give us that confidence that's ours, that confidence that we had, our original confidence that we hold to the end. And so exhortation, it's not always the fluffy way that we think about encouragement. Um, exhortation, uh, it's a lot of times not super fun. It's, it's fun to encourage somebody. It's fun to kind of sit down and uh, have an encouraging conversation. And not that exhortation is not encouraging. It absolutely is. But Exhortation involves conversations that we don't often look forward to. Um, How often do we look forward to reminding each other of our own sin that leads to judgment? Those are difficult conversations. But then we also remind each other of righteousness, of Christ, that because of our sin and because of the judgment that that entails, we have another to turn to, to Christ, who is our righteousness, And so, yeah, exhortation, it's not fluffy, but it's positive. It it reminds us of the confidence that we have in Christ. And we see in this passage, without consistent exhortation, we will have hard hearts because of the deceitfulness of sin. The way that this passage is structured, he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That will never not be true until Christ comes again And maybe the new kingdom is is structured in some other time constraint. Today will always be called today. And so every single day, exhort one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The implication is that without exhortation, the deceitfulness of sin will harden your heart. And so sin... uh, is deceiving. We see that about sin from the very beginning. Uh, we see in Genesis 3, the very first sin that, uh, that humanity commits of, of taking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The only one that God commanded them not to take from. Um, yeah, take from the tree, eat the fruit. God comes and walks in the garden and asks, what happened? And these are the words, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so now, because of our tendency to sin, every single one of us has pursued what we ought not pursue. Every single one of us pursues our own interests, our own desires, our own uh, agendas that are out of step with the character of God that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. Um, and because of, because of this, because of our bent towards sin, um, Or I should say, it's because uh, not only is the serpent deceiving, not only is sin deceitful now, but this is a condition that runs in our hearts, in every single one of us. Um, So if you look at Jeremiah 17, 9, uh, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so because of our tendency to gravitate towards things that, are centered on our own sinful pride rather than God's perfect character and righteous character. Because of this, we need regular exhortation to remind us of this reality and bring ourselves back over and over and over again to the righteousness that's found only in Christ. We need to be reminded every day, as long as it's called today, of the Spirit's conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Otherwise, our hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And a heart that becomes hardened by the deceitfulness of sin inevitably falls away from the living God. And so, how often do we wonder why we're struggling to believe uh, the same truths in our heart that? whenever we first heard, whenever we first believed, uh, we are super excited, it it lit our hearts on fire. We are so encapsulated with this beautiful and wonderful word of God. Uh, How often do we get bored with it and wonder why? How often are these truths just second nature that uh, become maybe even dull? And when we struggle, What do we turn to when we're asking those questions? When it becomes dull, are we uh, looking for that exhortation within the community? Uh, Because ultimately, um, exhorting one another has a flip side to it. It also means being exhorted yourself. Do we look to be exhorted by those who are around us, by that body, that house that's built together in Christ? Or... Do we just turn to things that are easier, our hobbies, our, uh, our own agendas, our work? It's so easy to get buried in work and to use work as an excuse to just kind of check out mentally. Um, do we seek exhortation or do we seek easier things? The reality is here that we have come to share in in Christ. We have come to share in his righteousness, and that's amazing. That truth is is amazing. And so Christ came uh, to to work these amazing works that we saw and uh, brought us from our own slavery, and we'll talk about this here in a bit in the promise. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, From our own slavery uh, to him, that we get to share in him is incredible and that ought to be enough to make our confidence firm but our hearts are deceitful and it's not we need the exhortation of each other or else we'll have an evil unbelieving heart and so an unexhorted heart ultimately will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin an unexhorted heart will fall away from the living God and that's what he's trying to communicate here there's gravity to this it's weighty we need each other to exhort each other to Christ over and over again, every day. And so let's keep going. Uh, Read with me in uh, verses 15 to 19. It says, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? Whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief and so these verses make it super clear that the the numbers fourteen that day that we see right there makes it super clear that that 's what we 're talking about here uh, by bringing up the, the who were those who heard and yet rebelled, uh, who were those who left Egypt led by Moses. It's, it's this generation, it's this people. Um, and so we've been reminded of our sin, and now the author reminds us of the judgment that accompanies that sin. And so we see bodies of an entire generation of God's people strewn in the wilderness because of sin, because of disobedience, and ultimately underlying both of those, their unbelief. They're unable to enter because of their unbelief. And so unbelief caused an entire generation to miss out on the rest that God had promised. And so while we can be confident that we've come to share in Christ, while we can, be, uh, we can and should uh, be encouraged by that truth, we have to be aware of the dangers of sin. We have to be aware of the deceitful nature of sin and where that can take us away from the promised rest. So today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so we have been warned. But, and it's cool, uh, in my Bible, I get to turn the page over from the warning to the promise. <laughs> and so uh, we turn a page. Um, so read with me uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so uh, whenever we look at this passage, uh, we are compared, again, to the wilderness generation. Uh, and the gist behind where we're, where we're going now is that there is a promise that still lies ahead of us. There's a rest that's still coming. There's a rest ahead. Uh, that's the direction that we're heading to, uh, the direction that we're heading towards. And so uh, the promise is still available to us right now, and that's what we see. The promise of entering His rest still stands. God's people in the desert may have walked away from Him. They may have abandoned their confidence. They may have lost their hope and therefore lost out on the promise. But this promise right here, this rest right here that we're heading to, that's still available to you. The the ship hasn't sailed on that. It's still right here. And he wants to encourage us with that. The the rest that God has promised is still right here before you. And so... uh, Again, whenever we look into this uh, passage, um, there's one word that's kind of accented because of where it's placed in the passage. Uh, and we don't see that in the ESV translation. Um, but four one is kind of structurally organized to, to mirror 3.12, where 3.12 says, take care, brothers. It starts off like that. Um, in the original translation here in, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, let us fear. And so uh, you see that that same structure here. Um, But rather than being warned about our evil, unbelieving, deceitful hearts, uh, chapter four takes us and and points us towards the promise. Let us fear lest we miss out on this amazing promise that's set before us. The opportunity to head there is still right before you. And so while that stands, uh, while we have that promise that promise, let us take hold of that. And so, um, ultimately, this rest too, when we turn to verse 2, uh, is made possible by the good news that's come to us. And so, just as good news came to God's people in Moses' day, uh, when they were brought out of slavery um, and uh, freed from their shackles 400 years, just as good news came to them, we see that it's, that it's come to us and we've already been through that. And in Hebrews, if we turn back to Hebrews 2, chapter 14, it says, "'Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, "'he himself likewise partook of the same things, "'that through death he might destroy the one "'who has power of death, that is, the devil, "'and deliver all those who through fear of death "'were subject to lifelong slavery.'" So do you see the similarities of Egypt? Egypt was delivered from an earthly power, an empire that held them captive for 400 years. But Christ comes to deliver us. He takes on flesh and blood and through death defeats the power of death itself that frees us from our lifelong slavery. That's the good news that we've been given. That's the good news that allows us to head towards this promised rest. And we've seen also, if we go back a little bit further to, to 2 verse 4, it says, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We see that we've also seen mighty works of God. It wasn't just Egypt who saw God's works of power that could clearly and unmistakably be attributed to him. But we also have seen these these signs, these works through Christ. Um, and so, yeah, the author is encouraging us with the promise that's still before us. He's pleading with us that this good news would benefit us. And then he uh, highlights why it didn't benefit Israel. He says, um, good news came to the us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so we see that exhortation and confidence go hand in hand. Without exhortation, confidence fades. There is no confidence. Without confidence, there's no promise. And so there's no allowance here <clears throat> of a kind of individual faith. Faith holding on to this promise, pursuing this promise holding on to our confidence. These are things that are meant to be pursued and meant to be, uh, we strive towards that uh, as, as a community together. This is a community project. It's not something that you strike out and do on your own because you know best. It's something that the community exhorts you in together. And without exhortation, confidence fades. Without confidence, there's no promise. But there is a promise And there is a community. And so we can be encouraged by that. So um, keep reading with me in uh, verse 3 through 5. It says, For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. And so in first reading over this, it seems kind of counterintuitive. It seems like, uh, yeah, it says, those who believed enter that rest, and then as he swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It seems like two contradictory statements. But the goal here is not to highlight that, that Israel didn't enter that rest. The goal is to highlight that there is a rest. There's a rest that God calls his rest. There's my rest right here. And then uh, he, he kind of gives further definition to what that rest is by taking, it, taking us all the way back to Genesis. And I love how he says this. He says, um, yeah, he says, for he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And anybody who knows anything about the Old Testament, this audience knows what Genesis, knows exactly where that is said. It's almost like I, I, if I said something like, somebody one time once said, Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Somebody said it. <laughs> Everybody knows who that is. That's Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time. Um, and that's, it, it's almost like he says it ironically. Everybody knows exactly what he's talking about here. And so as we, yeah, um, this, he's explaining this rest. He takes us back to Genesis 2. Um, and yeah, in Genesis 2, uh, he says, let's see. It says, uh, let's see, somewhere spoken, everybody, yeah, sorry, I'm getting lost in my notes here. Um, So if we go back to Genesis 2, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. He's saying here that the rest that is promised before us, the rest that we're heading to, is that same rest that God partook of in the very creation story, the very creation narrative. So this rest in Psalm 95 is the same rest of Genesis 2. This rest predates you and me. This rest predates Israel, God's people. This rest predates every person. But this is the rest that we're heading to. This is the rest that we're heading to. Yeah, we get to partake in God's own rest. And so uh, as you read through this, if this passage seems to be repetitive, that's because it is in a, in a very intentional way. And so when we look at the structure of this right here, there's there's a literary structure built in that's designed to highlight one key central point, and it's called a chiasm. And uh, we see here uh, the structure of uh, Quoting Psalm 95, uh, the author talks about my rest. He highlights that this rest is real. And then it talks about God's works. And then uh, it talks about the seventh day and then God's rest. And then again, seventh day talks about God's work and then my rest. It's repetitive, intentionally, to center on, to hinge on the reality that this rest that God has is the rest that we're talking about. This is the rest in Psalm 95. This is the promise that we're heading towards. And so, uh, yeah, I'll read that again for us. Um, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. And so this rest is real, and this rest has been here from the foundation of time, and that's the same rest that we're heading towards in Christ. And so uh, let's keep going in verses 6 through 11. It says, Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, And so the reason why David in Psalm 95, years after Israel had already entered into the promised land that God had had given them, the reason why they can still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and sing this psalm is because there's still a rest that's out there. Uh, There's still a rest that we're heading towards, and that's this rest that we've been talking about. Uh, And that's what the author wants to hammer into us over and over again, that this rest is real. This rest is before us. The promise of this rest is here, so let us strive together to attain that rest. And so... uh, in entering this rest, this is really cool, we get to rest from all of our works because ultimately this rest was not earned by us. This rest was earned for us. It's earned through Christ's finished works that are credited to us on our behalf. And so um, the fact that the author here, it says right next to each other, we've rested from our works just as Christ rested from his, then the next thing we see is let us strive And so that seems kind of almost contradictory, right? Um, It seems like working and striving would be the same thing. Um, But this this striving here, um, he's he's trying to say, take every effort that we enter that rest. And by that rest, he's very specific. The rest that's in Genesis 2, the rest that's in Psalm 95. uh, Strive to enter that rest, and so all this means that becoming a believer, that uh, obtaining that original confidence is not a one-time thing. This is, this is an everyday uh, thing. The good, the good news of the gospel is good news to us every single day. And so this is a daily community-wide effort that you share in with all of us so everyone sitting around, everybody in this room right here, uh, we are in the wilderness together. And so we are called to strive together, to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, reminding each other of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, leading each other back over and over again to Christ in repentance. And so the gospel is good news to every single one of us every single day, as long as it's called Today. And the most important piece of realizing the joy that's set before you is the community around you. And so I need you guys to encourage me, to exhort me in the gospel, to remind me of the identity that I have in Christ because my heart goes away from that. My heart gravitates toward my own self. I need you to remind me of the identity that I have in Christ, that he's one for me. Likewise, you need each other to remind yourselves of who you are in Christ, of the work that he's won for you in bringing you out of lifelong slavery to sin, Satan, and death. You need each other to remind yourselves of that truth because our hearts are deceitful beyond everything else and sick beyond imagination. I forget exactly what he said there. But the most important piece to realizing the joy that's set before you is the community around you. And so we strive together to enter that rest. And that's a beautiful thing, that we all get to strive together. We're not on our own as we we go through this. We're not on our own as we uh, encounter disappointment, as we encounter um, depression, as we encounter uh, demanding jobs that take too much time. We're not alone as we encounter... um, tragedies in our families as, as loved ones pass away we're not alone as we struggle with unbelief um, just as Israel struggled in the wilderness we're not alone when we're tempted to lose all hope that there is no rest we're in this together it's this the most important piece of realizing the joy is the community around you and so uh, let's finish out uh, this this piece in uh, 12 to 11 says for the word of god is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account that's a great way to cap off a good promise passage right (laughs) and honestly, if that doesn't send shivers down your spine, I don't know what will, because if I'm honest with myself, I don't, my thoughts gravitate towards myself. So often, my thoughts are not consistent with the character of God that we see in Scripture. Uh, If I have to stand up and give an account on the last day to the one who's to judge, that is a terrifying thing, and that points us straight to our need for somebody else. We cannot advocate for ourselves. And that's what we're going to pick up next week, or next time we're in Hebrews. Um, we're going to see why we have this confidence, why we can approach the throne of God with confidence in Christ because of the work that he's finished. Amen. And so um, throughout our entire passage this morning, we've seen uh, scripture interprets Scripture as Hebrews ultimately interprets Psalm 95. And we've seen this. The psalm was written to warn us both of our deceitful hearts that will lead us to unbelief and to help us be reminded of this promise that lies ahead of us, this promise that's, that's still available to us, and the beauty of that promise. It's God's rest that we are called to, that we're headed towards, that we get to enter in Christ. And so uh, reminding us of this situation in the wilderness and heading towards this promised rest was the exact purpose of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we've already talked about. But real quick, I want us to key in on one celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles that's significant in Scripture. And so if we turn to John chapter 7, we see uh, Jesus actually celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles here. And another name for the Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Booths. And so Jesus had already started his earthly ministry. He's already started uh, doing things like healing the sick and casting out demons. And uh, people are already wondering, might this be the Messiah? Might this be the one who's gonna bring about this final rest? And so uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of clarity behind it yet, but it says on the last day of the feast, the great day in, in John seven thirty seven, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen. And so, if there was confusion as to who Jesus was before, there's not anymore and we see two verses later that those people who are wondering are saying this is the prophet that's to come this is the messiah this is the christ this is him he has come to bring us into this rest and that's exactly what he started when he when he put on an amazing magnificent show of works in freeing us from sin satan and death capped by his resurrection from the grave, which seals that promise, which makes it sure we can be confident of that, which, which he's, the, he's later on compared in Hebrews as the first fruits. That means there's more to come. And those who are to come are those who believe in him, who call on his name, who hold fast that confidence to the end. And so that's where we're headed. Uh, we have a rest set before us. And we get to strive together. We get to exhort one another together because that's how Christ designed us as one house built together in him. And so thanks be to God for this wonderful news that he's brought us. So let us exhort one another as long as it's called today, reminding each other the beautiful promise that God set before us that we get to enter his rest despite ourselves because Christ has won that for us and calls us into that rest. So let's pray. Father, all of us are here today completely and entirely undeserving of your grace. Yet you, you you extend that grace towards us. You have, you've set this promise before us today. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts so that we might desire that promise. I pray that you would teach us uh, just the beauty of what this rest is, what this rest entails. And I pray that all of the things that we're tempted to get lost in, all of the easy things, I pray that those would, uh, would fall away, fall at the feet of the beauty of your rest. I pray that you would remind us of, of your magnificent and unparalleled works that you wrought to, to bring us to this promise. And I pray that you would use each one of us to encourage each other, to exhort one another uh, of sin, righteous, uh, sin, judgment, and righteousness. Uh, I pray that uh, that would lead us to Christ over and over again, and that we would see the joy that you've set before us of that, that rest in you. Um, I pray that you would um, remind us of our original confidence, remind us of when our hearts were, were ablaze and passion for, for your glory, and I pray that you would use the community around us to, to exhort us towards that joy. Um, in your name we pray, amen.